Well, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 8. And let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you for the gift of your word that you have revealed yourself to us. You have given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness that you have given us your spirit to guide us into all truth and to bring to our remembrance all the things that you commanded. And fathers, we are coming and we are seeing now the, the outpouring of your wrath on sinful man and judging sin and judging sinners that we would once again be stirred to preach your good news that people may repent and be saved while they can. And so, Father, help us as we, as we see all of these things begin to unwind in time and history today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to have a number of people in here today since the other Sunday school class is taking a brief hiatus for a couple of months and so I want to do just a little bit of review before we hit chapter 8. And so we have John the Apostle being taken up into heaven and he sees the risen Christ and um, Jesus gives him an outline for this book. John I want you to write the things that you have seen, the things that are and the things that are gonna take place after these things. And so the things that he has seen is chapter one. The things that are, are the letters to the seven churches, seven representative churches in Asia Minor. That's in chapters two and three. In the beginning in chapter four, he goes into the things that are going to take place after these things. Chapters four and five are a scene in heaven where primarily the emphasis is on praise and worship of God himself and of the Lamb. And in the course of that worship, we're introduced to several groups. We have a group of four living beings. And we find out that those are cherubim, those are special angels, and they are in the immediate vicinity of the throne of God. Then, there is a ring of 24 smaller thrones around God's throne. These are occupied by a group of 24 elders. These are going to be uh, representatives of redeemed saints, almost certainly from the church age. And then there are angels, there are other angels. And this morning, we're actually gonna run into, there's another group of angels. There's a group of seven angels that stand before the throne. And so you've got the cherubim, you've got the elders seated on thrones, and now we're gonna run into this group of seven angels who stand before God. And then you've got all kinds of other angels, and, and we see that in the, in the worship of God, it begins with the four living creatures, and then it spreads from the four living creatures to them and the 24 elders, and then all of a sudden, they pick up their harps 
and you got the band joining in and you've got the living creatures and you've got the, the elders and you've got their instrumentation and then that spreads to the rest of the angels that are present there in the throne room and then it spreads to every living thing. It's not just uh, people, it is all creation is crying out in praise and worship to God. In chapter five, we also are introduced to a book, a book that has seven seals. And there is a search made of all creation for one who is worthy to open the seals of this book and to look inside. And there is no one found with one, the only one who is able to take the book and to open its seals and to look inside is the lamb. John sees a lamb as if slain. And the lamb is able to take the book and to begin to open the seals. Chapter six, we run into uh, the first six seals. And we find that they begin with, um, actually you can't even say they begin with low intensity because you see the four horsemen being let, uh, called out and sent. And so you have them, then you have those the first four seals. The fifth seal is uh, John looks and he sees the souls of those who have already been martyred during the time of the tribulation. And then the sixth seal, um, things begin to get very intense. There is, an, there is a, a great earthquake and you have uh, the moon the sun becomes black as sackcloth. The whole moon becomes like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. The sky is, was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. And we see that there's no segment of society that is spared from the, the terribleness, frankly, of this earthquake. So we see that Oh, I forgot my glasses, that's not good. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? So we see that these people know exactly who is angry. They know exactly why he is angry. They know this is from God. They know it's because of their sin and their rebelliousness. And yet, what do they refuse to do? They refuse to bow the knee. They refuse to repent. And so this isn't about knowledge or lack thereof. These people know exactly who they're dealing with, and yet even then, they refuse to submit. They refuse to repent. And they end that with a question. Who is able to stand? Now, in one way, you think, okay, well, that's kind of a rhetorical question, right? Because where are they? They're hiding in caves. They are pleading that they would just be killed to be spared from the wrath of God. And are they able to stand? No, 
They're not. But there are some who are. That's chapter 7. And so in chapter 7, last week, we saw that there were, God had ordained a group of 144,000 national Israelites. These are 12,000 people from each of 12 tribes. And this, again, has got to be that they're being called out from Israel. Otherwise, I guess we're going to have to figure out which one of us belonged to the tribe of Issachar. You never see the church referred to as specific tribes from Israel, ever. And so here you have God raising up for himself evangelists from national Israel. And these 144,000 are sealed. They are given, uh, whether it's visible or not, that's not specifically stated, but they are sealed. They are given the names of God and of the Lamb on their forehead specifically so that they are to be protected. When you have judgments coming down on people, these people are going to be spared from that. And so you've got this group of 144,000, and then we see another multitude. And this multitude is described as being as rescued from the great tribulation and there are representatives from every tribe every nation every people every tongue there's no one who is exempted there's no group that God does not reach with the gospel so that they may be saved and we find that they are where they are standing before the throne they are standing before God how is it that they're able to because they have been rescued, they have been redeemed. And so here we have these two groups who in fact are able to stand and again is because of God himself. Now that brings us, we've had six seals. That's gonna bring us now to the seventh seal and that is the beginning of chapter eight. Chapter eight, verse one. When the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. It's interesting, this is the first time that there's silence in heaven. And so we have the seventh seal opened and you can hear a pin drop. Now, it does not say in the text why there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. And so, because it doesn't say, commentators kind of take that as free license to come up with all kinds of ideas as to why this is happening. And there is a very wide gamut. Um, there are some who will say that uh, there's no content for the seventh seal. Now that's not true. We're going to see how that's not true here shortly. We're going to see there were some who will say, well, that is, a, that is a representation of people entering into the sabbatical rest um, of heaven. Again, the seventh seal, they take that and they equate that to the seventh day. 
And what was the seventh day in creation? Well, that was the Sabbath, the day of rest. And so some say, well, that's what that is. Others will say that it is for dramatic emphasis. And that is probably there. I, I imagine that there is very likely an element of that here. When you've seen uh, things beginning to ratchet up as each of these seals is opened, you've just had something where pretty much unredeemed man realizes that he is in a world of hurt. You've got to wonder what's coming next, right? I think there is a hint as to why the silence exists. And that's what John immediately goes into. So this isn't that there is silence and then John sees these seven angels. It may very well be that this is concurrent. During the silence, all of a sudden now, here you've got these seven angels who stand before God. There is... Uh, and, and what we're going to see is that's where there's going to be a time of uh, these, what, there's, well, we'll get there in a second. Never mind with that. Now, there is a connection between silence and judgment. And so I've listed out some references for you here. Uh, Psalm 76, verses 8 and 9, Habakkuk 2.20, Zephaniah 1.7 and 2.13, Amos 8.3. And basically, this is, this is the idea of God is judging and the earth is to be silent before him. And so there is a connection there between the two. So now we're introduced to these seven angels. The seven angels. The is a definite article. And so this is seven angels. It's a specific group. The word here to stand is in the, it's not a present active. Now, a present active would be what? That is, that's, they're doing it now and they're continually doing it. This is in the perfect tense. So this is something where they started a while back and they're still there. So the only place that you can find, the only place I could find for a reference for something like this, if you go back to Luke 1.19, you'll find introduction of a specific angel. Which angel was it that appeared to uh, Zecharias in the temple? Do you remember? That's Gabriel. How did Gabriel describe himself? In fact, let's just go back there. Flip, keep your finger in Revelation. We're not going to be gone long. And go back to Luke chapter 1. The angel has come to Zacharias, Zacharias and told him, your Elizabeth, your barren wife, is going to have a son. Verse 18, Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? Now those are words you probably don't want to say to an angel when you've gotten a message from God, right? <laughs> how am I going to know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence 
of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Yep, oops. And so, and by the way, what was Zacharias doing when he gets this visit from Gabriel? He is fulfilling his service in the temple, and what is he doing specifically? He's burning incense in the altar. Okay? Now hold on to that one. Just keep that one in the back of your mind here. So, you've got an angel on the order of Gabriel. Is, this, is there any other occasion where we run into Gabriel? Sam, you're nodding your head up and down. Where else do we run into Gabriel? Daniel. Gabriel is one of the angels that was sent to Daniel. I think he does. I think he is the same angel that goes to Mary. But again, I'm thinking, what I was thinking of was Daniel. Because he is the one who... <laughs> I'm sorry, yes, I expect that you're able to crawl inside my head and know exactly what it is where I'm going. And so you have these seven angels. It's a special group. It's interesting that these seven angels are now given seven trumpets. Now, when did God decide that there were going to be seven seals and that now there are going to be seven trumpets, later to be followed by seven bowls? Is God making this up on the fly? No. This has been something that's been planned out from eternity past. So here you have a group of seven angels, and we're going to run into this actually fairly frequently in this book. It's where you have a group of angels who are created for a specific task at a specific time. And that is their job. Now, Gabriel apparently has had others too. But again, this is something where this is specific. Now, you've got these seven angels who are going to be given seven trumpets. And in between this, so here you've got the angels, they're given the trumpets, that's verse two. Now, pick up in verse three. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning in an earthquake. So we have another angel. Now there are some who believe that this is actually the Lord Jesus. Now, there's some way where you can see that, all right, I can see how you would think that. Because here you have Jesus you know, he would be at the altar acting as the faithful high priest that the book of Hebrews portrays him as, right? The issue here is that 
The word here, another, is the word that's used for another of the same kind. Now, there are other ways. There's another word that could have been used, heteros, different, um, but it's not. It's allos, and so it's the idea that it's, it's another of the same kind as those seven that have been given the seven trumpets. And this angel takes a golden censer, and he is offering incense on the altar that in the temple and the tabernacle was located inside the holy place. And so you had the holy place and it was outside the entrance into the holy of holies. Now the one offering incense that was done morning and evening, he couldn't go into the holy of holies where the dwelling place of God was, right? That the only person who could go in there was the high priest only on a single day, right? On the day of atonement, on Yom Kippur. And so this was outside that veil and as close to the presence of God as it could be physically located. In heaven, where is the quote-unquote dwelling place of God at this moment? Where's God the Father? He's on that throne. And so that altar of incense is right before the throne. And he's given a, a fire pan, same type of thing that was used with the tabernacle and the temple. And he is offering up incense. Now here it's interesting because here the incense is categorized differently than the prayers of the saints. Now if you, again, just flip back a page to chapter five, chapter five, verse eight. When he, Jesus, had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So there, the prayers of the saints are equated with the incense. And what again, what was the picture? What was it to offer incense? What, what, was, what, what was entailed there? Okay, so you would take fire from the altar and you would put it on the altar of incense, and then you would add to that the incense, and the incense then is being burned by the, by the coals, and it is generating smoke, right? It's generating this aroma that would rise, and the idea of that, the picture of that in the Old Testament is that is the prayers of the saints being offered up to God. What is God's reaction? In fact, let's back up just one second. Could any incense be offered on the altar? No. In fact, there's a couple of guys you could probably ask about that, right? Nadab and Abihu. And so God had a special formula for the incense that was to go to be offered on that altar. And in fact, was that incense to be used any place else? 
No, no. That was a special formula. That is like uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? And the special recipe that is kept in a locked safe, right? So that it cannot be discovered by others. This here is God's special formula, and it was to be dedicated to him and to him alone. That was never to be burned at any time, in any circumstance, in any other place. And so, now in heaven, as John is seeing this, there's the altar of incense that is in the presence of God. And by the way, can you and I stand in the presence of God right now? No. In fact, how does the Bible refer to it as for us now? No man can see God and live, right? God is transcendent. He is holy. He is entirely other than we are. Yet, what is God's response to the incense of the prayers of his people? He's pleased. This is something that pleases him. It is something that is invited. Frankly, it's commanded. And so here you have a God who on the one hand is physically unapproachable. Paul, Paul talks about how he dwells in unapproachable light, right? And yet, he delights in the prayers of his people. That is something that is special to him. It's pleasing to him. And so you have this, the incense and the prayers, again, ascending to God. And then a little something a little different happens. The angel now takes his censer and he fills it up with fire from the altar and he takes it over and he throws it down onto the earth. And there's no more silence. Now you've got peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning in an earthquake. You ever been in a thunderstorm at Ground Zero? What's it like? Okay, it can be, it can be terrifying, right? Because, yeah, I mean, when all of a sudden, when you see the flash and immediately <laughs> you have the thunder, what does that thunder sound like? It's, it's almost indescribable, isn't it? Because you've got this huge, you know, it almost sounds like an explosion, right? And it's right here, and it's right now. And so you've got this. Can you imagine what this is like on the earth? These people have just been crying out to the rocks to fall on them, to protect them from the wrath of the Lamb, and they haven't even finished round one. 
Here comes round two. Verse six. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And so, here it comes. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Most of you all know I investigate fires for a living. In 2020, two years ago, it was the, um, there was more acreage burned in California than at any other time in recorded history. Almost 4.4 million acres of grass and timber was burned in 2020. In fact, it was almost double the previous high mark. Now, so now, remember a couple of years ago, what was it like to walk outside? It's, yeah, the smoke was everywhere. The smell was everywhere. How much of the sky did you see? Not much, right? Because there was like this haze everywhere. Now take that and multiply it eight times. Because 4.4 million acres is about 4.4% of the land mass in California. There's about 100 million acres of land. The area of California is more than that, but you've got a bunch of lakes. You've got a bunch of waterways. So it's about a little over 4% of the land mass in California was burned in one year. What's it going to be like when it's a third? And so this is a judgment on the land. Yet, is it a full and complete judgment on the land? Okay, well, I don't think so. No, and you're definitive. No. Why is it no? It's only a third, right? It's a significant chunk, but it's not complete. It's not all. And so, again, so we saw in the first seal, when we saw in the seals that God begins, and there's some significant. Uh, the, force, the seals are not insignificant. A quarter of the population of the earth was killed in the seals, okay, during the seal judgments. A quarter of the population. Right now, the population of the earth is pretty much right at 8 billion people. So you've already got 2 billion, with a B, dead people on the planet. So that's not insignificant. And yet here, as we move into the next round of judgments, God is making them more intense, but no way, in no way is that dial turned up to high. You know, we're, you might have said, you know, we, we're on low heat in the seals, now we're going to be on me medium heat during the trumpets, and the high heat, well, that's coming when we get the bull judgments. 
And so here we have hail and fire mixed with blood. There's, of course, with commentators, there's great uh, debate as to whether or not that is to be taken figuratively or literally. Um, you know, I, I lean toward the literal always. Are the results literal? If the results are literal, then chances are the judgment's literal, right? You can't have one without the other. And so here you have a judgment on the land. Second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, on the first one, he's, very, he's actually pretty specific, isn't he? There was hail and fire mixed with blood. Now when we get into the second trumpet, he says it's something like a great mountain burning with fire. So what is John doing? He's describing, exactly. And so is it literally a great mountain that's on fire that's falling down into the sea? No. He's describing it, it's, it's like this. So if you ever wanna, you can play, you can actually put yourself in this position. Um, if you're a parent, how would you describe electricity to your child? All right, actually it does kind of start with a beginning question. Can you describe electricity? It's not easy. I teach this stuff. Uh, and it's, it's not simple. There's a lot of stuff that you end up using analogies in order to communicate the point. Can you imagine a first century person who has no idea what electricity is, by the way. They don't use it in a sentence. They've never heard the word. They certainly don't have it in their home. They've never seen it. They've never seen the effects of it outside of lightning or static discharge. It's something that's entirely foreign to them. And yet all of a sudden they're introduced to it and now they're asked to describe it. How are you going to do that? And so here you have John who is trying to use things with which he would be familiar with which he would expect his audience to be familiar. Remember, Revelation, what's the purpose of Revelation? Is it to hide things? Is it to make them mysterious and difficult to understand? No, it's the exact opposite, right? The purpose of Revelation is to make known something that has previously been hidden. And so here you have these things, and so John is trying to put it into language that people like him would be able to understand so that they would have an idea as to what it is that John is witnessing, what it is that he is seeing. And so you've got this, a great mountain, and so this would be something that's big, 
right? And it comes down, it lands in the ocean. A third of the sea becomes blood. What does that remind you of, by the way? Yeah, Exodus, right? Water being turned to blood. And so here you have a third of the sea became blood. So again, not all of it, a third of it. A significant portion, but not all. A third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. What's the significance of the ships being destroyed? What do ships represent? Trade and commerce. So all of a sudden, you know, this is something, these, these judgments aren't directed at people directly, but are they going to be affected by them? Oh yeah. By the way, what else does, does the ocean do? Oh yeah, it creates oxygen. It, uh, frankly, when you look at the whole water circle, right? If you don't have oceans, pretty soon, what are you not going to have? You don't have rain, which means you don't have fresh water. So, a third of the sea is blood. A third of the creatures in the sea are dead. A third of the ships destroyed. Verse 10, the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. So now, this next level takes and it's judgment on the fresh water, the stuff that you and I need to live. You can go a long time without eating. You cannot go a long time without drinking. Now, wormwood, that, that, that term is only used here in the New Testament. But you do run into it in the Old Testament. And wormwood is associated with judgment in the Old Testament. You'll find uh, wormwood referred to in Jeremiah 9.15 and also in Jeremiah 23.15 and again in Lamentations 3.15 and 3.19. And in fact, in the Old Testament, it actually talks about the waters being poisoned. So it's like... Uh, well, I'm sure you know, most of us have seen the Westerns where uh, there's a, a body of water, usually a small body of water. It's a watering hole. And people go over and they drink out of the watering hole and then they end up <laughs> and they fall over dead because the, the hole had been poisoned. That's the idea here. So a third of the fresh water supply is gone. And if you drink from it, it's going to kill you. So, judgment on the land, judgment on the ocean, on the sea, judgment on the fresh water, 
And then the fourth seal, the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. So the idea here is, is that part of the sun just went out for a third of the day. And that third of the day is not nighttime. It just became nighttime. So if you strike the sun, you automatically strike the moon, right? Because the moon has no light in and of itself. In fact, now is the perfect time to be able to figure that one out. If you go out at night and you see the moon, how much light's coming off the moon? Virtually none. It's a new moon. Meaning, most of the moon is blocked by the earth relative to the sun. And so it's not receiving any light from the sun and therefore it doesn't give off any light of its own because the moon's only reflected light. And so here you have, this is judgment on the heavens. This is judgment on the cosmological scale. Now again, keep in mind that as these are happening, what do you think is the response of people who are still alive on the earth? You know, all of a sudden, you know, it was bad enough with the earthquake and all the devastation from the earthquake. Now, the land's burning up, the sea's turning into blood, there's lots of places where you can't go get a drink anymore because it's poisoned. And the days just got considerably shorter than they used to be. Who's responsible for that? Is this just happenstance? Is this just, oh, you know what? It's global warming. No. This is the hand of God coming down in judgment. And again, God is still in wrath remembering mercy. Heat's getting turned up, but it's not all the way up yet. And so what do people have opportunity to do? They can repent. They're being given time to repent. Now many of them aren't. But again, at the great white throne of judgment, what will, what will they have to admit? I knew I knew what I should do, and I chose not to do it. And so there will be no fingers pointed at God. You made me. You made me do this way. No, it's their choice. And so you look at this, and can it get any worse? 
Well, God sends a message about that. Verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe. And that's W-O-E, not W-O-A-H. Woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, there is not dispute. I don't think that's the right word. You will see if you've got a King James or a new King James and probably some others, you will see that that's not an eagle. That's translated an angel. And there's one version that even goes as far as to say it's an angel as an eagle that has this message. And the word is different in some of the, in some of the transcripts, in some of the manuscripts. And so I don't know that it makes a huge difference as to angel versus eagle. Now the word eagle in the New Testament here in Revelation is translated as eagle. When Jesus uses it, it's translated vulture. Because the idea is, so so you remember that Jesus made the, the comment, for where the corpses are there, the vultures will gather. That's this word, same word. And so the idea here is that, and this, this idea of this, this term mid-heaven is that's the sky, and it's talking about the sky at the, the, the highest meridian. So that's basically, this is like at noontime. So if you were to look up in the sky, there would be an angel or an eagle, take your pick, flying there, and he, is, he has a message. And it's a message, woe, woe, woe only time that is used in triplicate in scripture. You get some double woes in chapter 18 when it's talking about judgment on Babylon the Great. Frankly, you don't need more than one. When Jesus said woe to him, you know, you know it's inevitable that sin comes, but woe to him through who it does, right? And so here you have it three times. And it's not referring to what's already happened. It's referring to what's fixing to happen. So what's the message? You think it's bad now? Just you wait, Henry Higgins. Just you wait. So again, why that warning? Again, more time, another opportunity. In fact, what's he doing? It is fixing to get really, really ugly. I'm telling you, in advance that that's getting to fixing to be that way. He's bringing it right up 
to their face so that there's no excuse. There is no ignorance here. They may not know the exact nature of what is coming. All these things are happening in their presence. There's nobody here who is ignorant of what's happening. There's no excuse for that. It's fixing to get really bad. Repent. Turn. Be rescued. All of these judgments have been on ecology. The rest of them, that's directed at people directly. Now, I know that you're not going to be able to believe this. It's 10 till. I know. It's never happened before. Pardon me? It's a short chapter, and I was really tempted. I usually go until about 10 after. Um, it was a short chapter. I was tempted because really chapters 8 and 9 go together. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't figure that, you know, if we're going to review because there's people coming in from Charles's class, we can't review and do chapter 9. So, any questions? Okay, timing. The, the, the question, well, the, 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 how does this fit timing-wise? And I think the best way to look at that is that the, trum the, the trumpets are falling in the second half of the tribulation. So this is going to be the great tribulation. We probably transitioned there back in the sixth seal. Um, the seventh seal, actually the seventh seal is what gives birth. The, the, the trumpets and the bold judgments all come out of this seventh seal. And so the seven seals really incorporate all of the judgment of God on, on Satan, on, on the demons, on unrepentant man, and on the creation. And so it's going to be in the second half of that. Good question. Any others? I'm not letting you out 10 minutes early. Okay, the question is, what, what is the significance of the seals then, or the seals, then the trumpets, then the bowls? Um, the seals and the trumpets represent the wrath of God mixed. God has never in history, well, I can't say he's never. Sodom and Gomorrah might take exception to that. Very rarely do you see the wrath of God unmixed and undiluted. Now, where's one place that you would have seen it unmixed? 
on Christ. On Christ. So again, remember that we saw in chapter six, no, it's the chapter seven. In fact, flip back over to chapter seven, just turn a page back. After he sees the sealing of the 144,000 from Israel, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands and they cry out salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And you go down a little bit further, verse 13, then one of the elders answered saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And so this innumerable crowd has come out of this period of time when these judgments are being poured out. And so here again with the seals, you see that there is a judgment, there, there's, there's wrath being poured out Yet, it's not complete devastation. It's enough so that everybody knows why it's happening, right? Sixth seal, in cha uh, end of chapter six, this is from God. This is the wrath of, the, of, of, of God, the wrath of the lamb. And then you see with the trumpets, the heat's being turned up. But again, opportunity is still present. And so you're having wrath being poured out in more and more uh, completeness and devastation. So that when you get to the bowls, what are you seeing when we get to the bowl judgments? That's the wrath of God, unmixed, undiluted. Pardon me? Fireworks. Yeah, the grand finale, the grand finale. You all know what a finale rack is, right? When it comes to fireworks? That's the one at the end of the show where every, it's just constant, right? Boom, 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 boom. Very cool, actually. But again, the, the, the significance of the, of the bowls, that's unmixed. Juliet. Do you really think that um, people really will acknowledge that God is doing this? I just have a hard time believing that everyone will actually at this point acknowledge that God is doing this. So the question is, you know, do we, do we really think that people will acknowledge that it's God who's doing this? Go back to chapter 6. And again, chapter six, uh, the end of chapter six is the sixth seal. So we haven't even gotten into the trumpets yet. We're still in the seals. Verse 16, and they said to the mountains, and again, this is, well, actually go back to verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man. What element of society has been left out there? That's everybody, right? That's everybody. 
hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. They know. They know. Right, and so the, the, the comment is it's like the demons. You know, they know. Uh, in fact, how often in the Gospels did you see Jesus uh, communicating with a demon possessing a human being? The demons knew. They didn't have to ask, yo, who are you? Not one of them does that, right? What do I have to do with you, son of man? What do I have to do with you? In fact... They're terrified. We're going to run into this next week or the week after. I can't remember which. Don't send us to the abyss. Don't send us there. Yeah, they know. Look, they even know the end of the story. They know how things end up. They lose. Yet, they don't repent. Now, it's a little different for demons than it is for people. Jesus died for people. Jesus died to set people free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. He didn't do that for demons. There is no salvation offered for demons. There is no rescue. When they, bless you, when they rebelled, that was a one-way ticket. And so they don't have the ability to repent. Nor do you see any wanting to. Bless you again. You okay? <laughs> you don't see a repentant demon. Ever. And can I tell you something? Were it not for the grace of God, you would never see a repentant person either. Yeah, boy, you weren't kidding about four more. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, people will come up with almost any explanation other than God. Remember the, magi remember the magicians in Egypt? And when the plagues started happening? They were able to reproduce some of those plagues 
But the day came when all of a sudden, what did the magicians say to Pharaoh? This is the finger of God. And so the time comes when, you know what? I can, I can try to ignore the guy behind the curtain over here. And the time comes when, no, this is the finger of God. The guy that we've tried to say doesn't exist. Yeah, well, he's showing different. Yeah. Yeah. It's never been integrity. It's always been, yeah, I know, but I'm suppressing And for the tape, uh, Brian's comment is, is Romans 1, where people suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and it's come to the point now where there's no more suppression. There's still rebellion, but you can't, you can't hide the ball. Kathleen. Okay, so the question is, uh, going to Romans 8, where it talks about those who were called, those who were justified, those who were glorified, um, is that referring just to the 144,000? It starts with them. Then the whole reason for having that 144,000, those are God's evangelists roaming the planet. And from those 144,000 and their message, that is where that countless multitude comes from. And so there are going to be many, many who at the end do come to salvation. They do. In the midst of wrath, God is remembering mercy and he's still rescuing. And the time is gonna come where the last one's in. And when the last one's in, then you're dealing with the rest as, 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 as a whole. And so it's beginning. And again, remember that the book of Revelation, the, the whole purpose of the tribulation, not the entire purpose of the tribulation, the main focus of the tribulation period is the purification and the redemption of national Israel. That's the main thrust. And even in that, there's a bunch of Gentiles who are getting brought along. And so again, most of it is about, the main thrust is about the purification of Israel. God is going to rescue his people. Most of them are gonna get killed. Two thirds, of the, two thirds of the Jews will die in the great tribulation. You find that in Zechariah. But they're gonna be redeemed. And it's five after. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we have been rescued. We are not going to be subject to your wrath. Lord Jesus, you have satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. And how grateful we are that you have done that for us. 
something we could never do on our own. And so, Father, we thank you that you provided a way of redemption and that you, you brought it about yourself. Everything about our salvation is of you. You thought it up. You executed it. You give us the faith. You give us the grace in order to be able to, to repent and to believe. And so, Father, we thank you. And again, we ask that there is still time for those who are lost to become found. And so help us to be faithful and diligent in speaking your gospel. That we would live it out in the eyes of those around us, but that we would be faithful messengers and faithful preachers of your truth. You are worthy of all praise, all of it. You rightly do that. Oh, Father, help us to honor you with our hearts, with our words, with our actions, with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.